Hi, my name is Martin Purnell and welcome to Off Grid Christianity, a weekly podcast for people who feel disconnected from church. On today's podcast, a Christian singer-songwriter who wrote, amongst others, You Laid Aside Your Majesty and All Heaven Declares. He also pioneered the Champion of the World event at Wembley Stadium in 1997 and only last month was involved at the international worship gathering called This Is The Day at the Pushkas Stadium in Hungary. Gives me great pleasure to welcome to this podcast, Noel Richards. Noel, thank you for joining us today. Ah, it's a pleasure. Good to be with you. Yeah, yeah. I, yeah really, really, I'm grateful that you can spend time to do this. Uh, before we go to the five questions, uh, it starts for ten, sort of thing. Uh, after intensive uh, research about yourself, namely Wikipedia and stuff, it's <laughs> not much on Wikipedia. <laughs> well, you'd be surprised. You'd be surprised because it says that your, your birthplace was Hlantrisant. That means I now know three things about Hlantrisant. One, right. um, the Royal Mint was there, and yep. uh, two, in my days growing up in, in Bristol, I always used to listen to Red Dragon Radio, and there was an advert that would come on incessantly called Leaks of Lantricent, which was like a, a departmental oh, store or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't know what you remember um, those times there. Well, yeah, and I think uh, the, the family that owns Leaks now own a very nice hotel called the Vale Resort oh. in uh, near uh, Lantricent, which I've stayed at many times when visiting my family down there. We always go for the bargains if we can get them, because <laughs> it's uh, but it's a nice a nice hotel and it's amazing. Just from a little ironmongery store, uh, they've got this huge leisure centre and um, hotel complex, and they own a castle and everything, wow. all from a little ironmongery shop. That's amazing, yes. isn't it? Quite amazing, yeah. Yeah, we could we could maybe put a spin onto that and bringing a parable to her as to what happens with a little grain of sand or something. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. A bit of trivia to get started. Well, it's great. Well, talking of trivia, <laughs> here we go. Fingers on the buzzers, no conferring, no. Um, right. Actually, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be a bit naughty here. Uh, I've got a bonus question for you. All be revealed. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> question number one. If you could invite anybody from history for an evening meal, alive or dead, so that you could ask them questions, who would it be? Mm, very good question. Well, actually, it's a musician. Great. And uh, a, a, an alive musician. Yeah. I, I'd actually like to um, spend some time with a guy called Cat Stevens or Yusuf Yes, Isla, as he now is. Yes. Yeah. Great. Why? Um, well, I think when I was just starting out as a singer-songwriter uh, back in the early 70s, then, you know, he was kind of a role model for me, you know, because... Uh, the kind of folk rock thing, acoustic guitar uh, kind of thing was really where I started. And of course, you know, back there about 71 or 72, he had that big hit with the hymn, Morning is Broken, Featured which is Rick a classic. Wakeman on piano. Yeah, that's right. Rick Wakeman on piano. Yeah, beautiful. And, and then interesting, you know, his story is how he uh, converted to Islam or became a Muslim after quite a, I think, a traumatic incident where he almost lost his life. Yeah. Um, so it's kind of fascinating just to to sit down and um, talk about his journey, spiritual journey, and uh, the songs he's written and the kind of stuff he's done within that community. I think it's kind of interesting. Well, if you do, tell him he's got one of the, I think, well, the, the, the most as a, as a drummer myself, one of the, the greatest little drum breaks of all time in Matthew's son. Right, oh, at, right okay. at the very end, and it really annoys me when you hear DJs talk over it. It's like, no, you don't talk <laughs> over that. Just like you don't over the, the love affair, everlasting love. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. And then the Eagles, right. but we won't talk about that either. Um, 
Great stuff. Thank you. Well, I look forward to hearing about that when you, yeah. you meet him. Uh, question two. Who is your favourite biblical character or favourite biblical story or favourite parable? Well, I was, I was thinking about this. Um, and uh, the one thing that sprung to mind was the incident where Peter spent some time with the Roman centurion. Mm-hmm. And I think what was particularly interesting about that was he kind of got this message from heaven where uh, an assortment of seafood was handed down to him and uh, basically said, well, you know, enjoy uh, shrimp, lobster, whatever. And he goes, well, I can't do that because it's against the law. And for me, that really, you know, makes it clear that things had changed. Yeah. in the New Testament era after Christ came, that we were no longer subject to an old agreement. But there is a new agreement which uh, supersedes the old. And I think for me, I'm, I'm rather sad when people still actually like to embrace the laws of the Old Testament, mm. when actually God says, hey, things have changed. Eat your shrimp and um, don't worry about seafood. So I think it's quite, you know, it marks a sea change in the way God was uh, thinking about things. Was there a pun there, sea change, or was it sea change? Oh, no, change? that was not intended. No, <laughs> terrible, isn't it? Yeah. Oh, I should do this for a living. <laughs> and maybe that was the first recorded event of a paella in the Bible. There you go. Who knows? Who knows? That's a great answer. I like that. And I've got a feeling we'll be coming back to the, the idea of uh, change uh, later on. I'm sure, yeah. I'm, I'm pretty sure we are. <laughs> Question three. If you're Prime Minister for the day and could change any law or impose a new law, what would it be? Well, do you want a list? Uh, just the top one. <laughs> I can, I'll take, I'll, I'll take a, tell you what, I'll give you two. I'll take a serious one and one that you might not think is serious. Okay, well, this one might, might not be so serious, but actually it winds me up every time I go, go back to Britain, is uh, the ridiculous idea of charging passengers uh, every time they get dropped off at an airport. Oh, uh, brilliant. <laughs> I, was, I was at Gatwick Airport recently, um, and uh, I was being picked up by my guitar player. I'd stayed at the hotel there overnight, uh, just a, a brief visit to the UK. And he was complaining because he had to pay a fiver to pick me yeah. up, which is just daylight robbery. And then on the way back later that afternoon, when he dropped me off at the airport, he basically pulled in at the garage by the which everybody was doing, pulling at the garage by the airport and saying, "Well, I'd much rather give them a fiver for fuel, which I can use." And all these people were being dropped off at the garage and walking with their bags the two yep. or three hundred yards to the airport. And I think it's just, uh, you know, just shows that Britain rips people off. And I, I, I'd, I'd like to actually outlaw those parking charges, and also in supermarkets as well. Because my, my guitar player, we, we went to the local supermarket to pick up some food because we were doing a rehearsal at the studio. Mm-hmm. Uh, so he was clocked on the camera when he went in. And um, they, they, he wasn't clocked on the way out. But then we went back to Tesco's later in the afternoon to pick something else up. And it clocked him on the way out. And he gets this fine. So then we had to send receipts in and say, look, we were visited twice. Yeah. So I think let's get rid of the cowboy uh, parking charges. Yeah, that's 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 maybe a not serious one, but a serious one would be um, let's get rid of smart motorways. Ooh. Because they're not smart, they are dumb. Yeah. Yeah. Well, fortunately, we don't have them over here in Northern Ireland, but when I've been back uh, to, to across the mainland, it, it does make you wonder, what's this all about? 
It really yeah, does. Well, there, there, there's two great things. And uh, to fly the flag for Belfast International Airport is only quid if you come over to drop you off. But oh, if you walk good. about 300 yards, the Longstay car park, we can park there for 10 minutes for free. Well, here in Mallorca, it's much better. Um, because up until recently, there, there was no charge. Mm-hmm. Uh, for dropping off or picking up, but now they've they've basically uh, they've got a new system now whereby you're allowed 15 minutes to drop off and 15 minutes to collect. There's two separate areas: one for drop off, one collecting. But Brilliant. the uh, the locals have a great idea here. They just all queue up outside. <laughs> so rather than go in and have to pay, they all queue up on the road outside. Yeah, and yeah. it's wonderful because there's no cameras. See, that's another thing. There's no cameras. So when you go to the airport in Mallorca. You've got all these people waiting until their relatives, friends come out of the airport and call them and go, right, come pick me up. Exactly. So that's how they avoid all the charges. Exactly. So, exactly. Different here. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, when I was at Luton Airport two months ago, I said to my friend, look, you're not paying the exorbitant charge. I'll go and walk and meet you in the, the furthest mm. car park that's free. You know, yeah. Three hours later, I eventually arrived there, but <laughs> 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 it saved him five quid. Um, yeah. Good stuff. Question four. Outside of mm. family events, what has been your most enjoyable day out? Oh, well, it's very difficult to answer a question like this because there's lots of enjoyable days. But I was thinking about a, a time, actually, when Trish and I um, went on a rail trip across Europe. Mm-hmm. So uh, back in 2017, we, we bought an interrail pass. Oh, brilliant. And uh, put uh, our travel guitars on our back and uh, did a, a sort of a trip around Europe. Fantastic. backpacking with our guitars and stopping off and doing gigs in various places. Brilliant. Um, and it started, the idea started because Trish wanted to travel on the Glacier Express uh-huh. in Switzerland. And uh, we could do it with the Interrail Pass. And uh, it's it starts in um, Italy and uh, not far from Lake Como. Can't mm-hmm. remember what the station's called now. And then it's like a three-hour ride. It's not really an express because it's dead slow. But right up into the into the Swiss Alps, wow. and it's just absolutely breathtaking scenery, and eventually arrives in Switzerland at a city in Switzerland, and it's just a it's just a fantastic journey if you can ever do it, um, and the best way to do it is do it yourself. So you 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 pay yeah. hardly anything for doing it. You see all these expensive holidays advertised in the newspapers in the UK, but you can actually do it quite cheaply. So we did it as part of an interrail journey. It was the most amazing, stunning journey right up into the Swiss Alps. Um, With or without snow? Loads of snow. A clear, sunny day. It was May, and uh, it was a beautiful, sunny day, and everywhere was just glistening with snow. Just spectacular. Wow. Well, that's that's brilliant. I like that. Uh, Last question, sir, before we get to your bonus question. And no one's ever had a bonus question before. You'll find out why in a minute. (laughs) I will. Yeah, right. Catch me on the hop. (laughs) What has been your most embarrassing moment? Well, I've probably had lots of embarrassing moments, so I was struggling trying to remember which ones. And um, I suppose one that occurs to me was when I was much younger and I just started in secondary school. Mm-hmm. And, you know, when you're in the in the first year at secondary school, you want to kind of get involved in the school community and, you know, not be seen as a prat. You know, so. <laughs> And the teacher asked us if we would like to sell some raffle tickets to raise funds for the school. And I thought, what a great idea. Yeah. So I, I got a book of 10 raffle tickets and went home and uh, invited my parents to buy some tickets. And my dad was not very happy and insisted I 
take the raffle tickets back to the teacher and say, we don't do that because we're Christians and we don't gamble. <laughs> yes. Which was a very embarrassing moment for me because now I had to take this back and go, my dad doesn't want you to, yeah. doesn't want me to do that. I mean, that's not to paint my parents in a bad light. They were great parents. They were wonderful. But, you know, unfortunately in the 60s, uh, Christianity was rather legalistic in yes. the era where we were and, you know, raffle tickets, gambling, I don't think so. It was all for a good cause, but it was quite embarrassing for me as a sort of a, an 11-year-old to have yeah, to say, yeah. sorry, my parents don't want me to do this. Yeah, anyway, yeah. there you go. No, thank you. Yeah, I'm sure we can hear a lot of people go, yes, been there, seen it. Yeah, yeah I can hear that. Uh, thank you for sharing that. Uh, so your bonus question then. Okay. Um, Champion of the World, 1997, Wembley. Yep. I actually interviewed you there. The question is, where did I interview you? Where did you interview? Yeah. interview? Oh, right. Okay. It would have been quite close to the Royal Box, I would have thought. Uh, no, actually, no. no. Um, you didn't. It was no. after. It was literally within 15 minutes of um, it all closing. And oh. I interviewed you afterwards. Mm. I cannot remember. <laughs> I am sorry, but my mind is a blank. Well, it's something that stayed with me because... Um, just to paint you as a, you know, it was it was a really humbling moment for me, because uh, other people were saying, "Oh, we can't, we can't possibly spend time to be interviewed by you." Um, so I, I saw you in the distance. We were um, in between the twin towers themselves in the old Wembley Stadium uh, mm. on the top foyer, and I went up to you and I said, "Look, from UCB as I was at the time, can I have a few minutes to interview you?" And you said, "Sure, not not at all. I've got to go and get changed. You can interview me whilst getting changed." And we then found. Um, a cleaning cupboard ah, right in the centre of the Twin Towers. Uh, so I went in there and interviewed you whilst you were getting changed. And it was phenomenal. Oh, well, there you go. Yeah, yeah, I remember that ever since, that it doesn't matter who you are. Um, you, could, you were able to spend time with little old me. It was fantastic. Oh, so. well, glad, glad I was able to do that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I remember that. So, anyway, right, well, from uh, Champion of the World in 1997, let's bring it Bring it right up to date first of all, that's mm. all right, because we've got so much to talk about. Um, you were in Hungary last month yes. at the Pushkas Stadium, for those that mm -hmm. know football like I do. Uh, Pushkas, um, great player, now had a stadium named after him, which yeah. I think is a very great thing to do. Why were you there, sir? Oh, right. I'll try and make the, the, the story as brief as possible. Please. But at, at Wembley Stadium, there were a number of things that happened. There was a, a young guy who was living in London at the time who was Hungarian. And he wanted to go to the stadium for champion of the world and wave the Hungarian flag. Wow. So he basically made a Hungarian flag out of paper napkins, red, green, and white, and wrote Hungary on the white bit in the middle. Wow. And when we were singing champion of the world and uh, videoing the event, we were singing the, the final song, uh, the camera panned to the Hungarian flag which was interesting. Yeah. So if you ever look at the video uh, in the few closing moments of the event and champion of the world, you'll see the Hungarian flag being waved, which was made out of paper napkins. Fantastic. Um, and on the same day, um, a couple of friends in our church who had a connection with Hungary, uh, they said, you know, we, we see Wembley as uh, the beginning, not the end of a journey. And we would suggest that events like this need to happen in stadiums across Europe, like... Berlin, Budapest, Barcelona. So there was that sort of connection there. 
Uh, and then we did the video. We put that out from general release. And there was this businessman called Victor Laszlo in uh, Budapest who saw the video, saw the Hungarian flag being waved, wow. which inspired him. And he thought, we need to do that in Budapest. Yeah. And uh, this couple that had given me uh, the letter, they were also friends with Victor. So in 1998, they connected us. And uh, I went to Budapest for the first time in 1998, met Victor, and with a group of friends, uh, we went to the old Pushkas Stadium and prayed that one day there would be a worship event held in the stadium. And then Victor, from uh, the early 2000s, I think my first visit to Budapest for a gig was 2001. And so from 2001 onwards, uh, Victor has been organizing huge events in Hungary mainly, but also in Romania and surrounding countries, um, basically with the goal of getting people one day into the stadium. And I said to him after a few years of going there, I said, why don't we just use the Puskas Stadium? He goes, no, no, we want to wait for the new stadium to be built. And of course, they built a brand new stadium, which yeah. was opened in 2019. And we were there for the opening event, which was uh, Hungary against Uruguay football game. Mm -hmm. uh, because we were in the middle of a road show, which was taking in, uh, I think, about 25, 30 cities um, in Central Europe uh, to promote the event in 2020. But then, of course, the pandemic hit. And uh, the, the event had to be postponed in 2020 and 21 and uh, took place just a few weeks ago uh, on July 23rd, 40,000 people in the stadium. It was absolutely fantastic. And uh, it was the result of what we did at Wembley all those years ago and yeah. subsequent years of traveling to Budapest and supporting the team there as they got on and done it. Wow. Well, thank you for sharing that. Yeah, uh, as you say, you know, from 1997, when it was, the, it was the old stadium, now you've gone. Yeah. And you, you alluded right at the beginning that, you know, obviously there's there have been seed changes. In your road shows, gigs, worship events, whatever you whatever we should call them these days, what have you seen in a way of changes uh, spiritually? Oh, um, that's, a, that's, a, that's a huge question. Yeah. <laughs> Break it down. Yeah. I think I think the changes have come for me basically, because you know one of the things we realised was that if we were going to uh, see other events happening in other countries, then we had to invest in those places and travel to those places. And I've often likened it to you know you, you have a mountaintop experience, which mm. for us was what Wembley was. You know, to to play at Wembley Stadium, the, that venue of legends. Uh, but then, you know, it's like a mountain peak experience. But if you're going to climb other mountains, you have to come off the mountain peak, go down into the valley and start another climb. So uh, I, I think for us, it was definitely, you know, going on another journey uh, as we traveled throughout Europe and other countries, you know, encouraging people to come to an event we did in Berlin mm -hmm. uh, in 2007. Uh, yeah, was that right? No, 2000. Yeah, 2000. I'm just trying to think now. Was that 2006 or 2007? No, it was 2006. I'm sorry. Yeah. Right. <laughs> so I remember watching it on God TV, by the way. Yeah. Yeah, we we did that in 2006, 
and and realizing that um, as I was traveling, I was getting more and more tired of leading worship events because it seemed that you know I was having to deliver an experience, yeah, which uh, I can't do. I'm just a singer songwriter. I sing songs. Uh, I can lead people in worship. You know, I can facilitate, if you like, uh, worship through. Uh, the songs that we bring, but I found that uh, increasing pressure to actually make something happen. Yeah. That there were all these like worship nights happening and people had an expectation of something dynamic happening. And I, I remember as I was traveling in, in the latter years of uh, like 2007 to 2010, probably with a, a friend of mine, particularly in Germany, starting worship events and thinking, oh, I can't wait for this to be over. Uh, because I was getting tired of just doing that and the expectation people had for some sort of spiritual experience that I could provide. Yes. And, uh, and so I think for me, uh, I, I got tired, a little tired of what I would say leading worship uh, or doing worship events yeah. because I think I was being asked to do something I couldn't do, which was... <laughs> people in experience and you can't do that uh so you know since probably 2010 trish and i have gone back to our roots as songwriters and and just thought well let's let's write songs about our life let's write songs about stuff that people go through let's um let's take a step back from that whole sort of worship bubble and uh, let's not stop doing worship songs. Let's include them in our sets. But I think wherever we go, we can, what can I say, you know, help people to encounter the God who is present. So you don't stop being, in quotes, a worship leader <laughs> or somebody who's able to connect people with the presence of God. Yeah. Uh, but we've been doing it in a different way over these last 10 or 12 years, basically, and just doing concerts where we share our songs and let what happens happen to people yeah yeah yeah, yeah. Was, i think what you're trying to say then if i've if I got this right <clears throat> is that you know when billy graham in his heyday came to town you know, mm. he actually had a separate worship leader in cliff barrows mm. to, to lead the, the singing the community singing yeah choirs everything and then that would just leave billy to come on and, and do yeah. what he he did best but it seems as if um everybody expected you to be cliff barrows and billy graham all rolled into one and also to make the sandwiches as well maybe Yes, that's right. I, th I, th I think what we, I think this whole thing of you know worship events became bigger than what we expected it to be. Mm. I think when we were traveling around the UK, you know, encouraging people to come to Wembley Stadium, um, we just okay. Going back, I, I, th I think what started me was seeing somebody like Ishmael all those years yeah. ago do, doing his praise parties. Yep. And actually, you realize that actually worshiping God could be fun. Yes. And you know, he'd do these after hours praise parties at an event called Spring Harvest where it would just be fun. And there was there was no expectation other than we'll just let our hair down and we'll have a good time. Because it is fun to to sing these songs and you know, Ishmael's songs were always a lot of fun for kids of all ages. <laughs> so when we started doing our worship concerts, we I suppose we, we sort of decided to put on just a show. So we had dancers with us. We, we did No Holds Barred, just fun. We did, did a, a full-on concert. And uh, I think there were times in those concerts where people, 
you know, had an encounter with God, uh, you know, particularly as we included songs like You Laid Aside Your Majesty, All Heaven Declares, where people had a chance to engage uh, with the God who is present, uh, but we weren't under any pressure. Yes. And, and also we were taking people on a journey and said, come to Wembley. We're going to have a great praise party at Wembley Stadium. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, uh, you, know, I, uh, you know, Wembley Stadium was not going to change the world, but it was going to change the world of the people who came there. Yes, yes. And, and, but I think what happens was we got into this thing of every event is going to be a world-changing event, but it's, it's not like that. And I think, you know, you realize you can't, you can't meet those expectations. Yes. So, uh, yeah, you just basically take a step back and say, well, this is what we can do. And if it works for you, then that's great. Brilliant. You just said there, Ian um, Ishmael, or I think his real name was Ian Smail, isn't it? Something like that. Ian, Ian Smail, that's yeah, his yeah. name. Yeah, I remember reading um, his autobiography. And uh, one of his previous bands he was in was called Rev Counter and the Speedos, which I thought was a yeah. great name. So um, what other bands have you been in <laughs> with names like that, that maybe? No, I, yeah, I, used to, I used to gig with Ish when he was in the old Rev Counters band. I mean, I've known Ish since the, the mid-70s. Wow. Uh, when I was working down in Plymouth with uh, Youth for Christ down there. So we would put on these concerts at the YMCA in Plymouth, and Ish was a regular visitor. And uh, he would always he would always take the mick out of me. You know, it was like whenever we were playing, he would be standing in the sidelines just laughing and giggling and, and just teasing us. He's always been like that. It's kind of our relationship. Yeah. yeah. Um, but no, he said to me years ago, he said, just be yourself. You know, be what you are. Don't try and be what we are. Because I, I loved what he was doing with the Rev Counter and the Speedos. Uh, but he said, Look, no, he says, you can't be what we are. You know, just be what you are and, yeah. and do that to the best of your ability. Uh, which is great advice, and that's what I've been trying to do ever since. But yeah, so we we go back a long way, and uh, we keep in touch. And uh, he calls me knobs. That's that's he's always called me knobs. I don't know why. <laughs> really? And we we used to do we used to do songwriting conferences together. You know, and confuse everybody because I talk about crafting songs and you know making sure the songs really worked. And he goes, well, if you can't write an album in twenty minutes, you you're useless. So <laughs> we confuse everybody at our songwriting conferences. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and there was Mark Bowden saying he'd, he'd write a song in about five minutes, you know, it would just go yeah. to number one. Yeah, I know. Wow. I could talk about this for hours, music with you. Uh, it's, it's brilliant. Um, however, right at the very beginning, um, in my introduction, you know, I say those are people are, are disillusioned and disconnected from church. You know, this is a podcast from them. And uh, what really connected myself with, with your website was mm-hmm. a, a little podcast you did yourself on why you don't go to church anymore. Um, yes. And that was that was a phenomenal thing because it was it was like clickbait all of a sudden, oh I've got to listen to that. But by, <laughs> by the time by the time I heard it, I thought, wow, that really makes sense. So I'd like you to share, please, if that's all right, what you actually meant by that and yeah. what feedback, if anything, you've you've had as a result of it, please. Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean I mean encouraging feedback, to be honest with you. Good. Because I, I think people understood the spirit of what I was trying to communicate. Yes. Uh, so, you know, my background is I, I grew up in South Wales in a Pentecostal church. Great family, great parents. I, they, they've been so encouraging to me over the years. And my mum, who is still alive, is still a great encouragement, you know, right. and still prays for me every day. But I, I think back then the, the, the kind of church environment we were in was very legalistic. Uh, and everything was around going to church and dressing for church and 
that whole thing on a Sunday being the Lord's Day. Uh, and then when I, uh, when Trish and I moved to Cobham in Surrey uh, back in 1980, and we'd been part of a youth church for quite a while, which was quite, um, you know, different and unusual. But we still had a lot of baggage, I think, from from our early experience of, you know, being much more legalistic as Christians. And then I, I remember uh, when I finally got the opportunity to lead worship one uh, Thursday evening, and that was an interesting thing because our, ch our church, Cobham Christian Fellowship, met on a Thursday, not on a Sunday. So I said, well, why don't we meet on the Lord's Day? And they went, well, because there isn't a Lord's Day, because every day is the Lord's Day. So he's not Lord on Sunday, he's Lord on Friday, he's Lord on Thursday. So when every day is the Lord's Day, then that affects the way we behave every day, not just on a, on a Sunday. And I remember leading worship on this Thursday evening, and, and the guy leading the meeting said, well, that's great, we'll see you all in September. And this was like the end of June. And, uh, and I said to him, look, I said, Mick, I said, did I hear you right? You know, there's no more public meetings until September. And he said, yeah, that's right. People are on holiday, people are away, there's no point in having them. And I said, well, you might find you haven't got a church in September. And he said, well, if we haven't got a church in September, we haven't got a church now. And he was making the point that this particular church, Cobham Christian Fellowship, uh, was not about meetings. It was about life and community and sharing uh, God's love with one another on a daily basis. And actually, the church continued throughout the summer. The only thing that didn't happen was a public meeting. But people continued to support the church financially. People continued to meet in home groups. People continued to meet with their friends and neighbors for barbecues. Church life continued, but, you know, one gathering a week was not what this church was all about. So that's why it came out, I don't go to church, because I suddenly realized you, you can't go to church, you are the church. And, you know, the church is not a building, but the church is people. Yeah. And we, you know, we're either part of the church or we're not. Yes. So church is not something you can, so we never use that phrase in Cobham, um, going to church and uh, it's never been for 30, 40 years. It's not been in our thinking that we go to church. We've, we've stopped, we stopped going to church in 1980. Yes. But we were part of a church uh, for many years. Yeah. And that was, so it was, I know it's a play on words, but it's a very important thing. Yeah, it, was, it, certainly, it certainly made me think when I heard it. I like, yeah. Oh, yeah, I understand that now. So... Yes, it was. It was. I'm, I'm glad I, I clickbaited it. <laughs> yes, and and then what happened was back in uh, 2004, uh, the church had come to the end of its life. Right. The, the the Cobham Christian Fellowship or Pioneer People, as it had then become, had run its course, and uh, the guy that started it, uh, Gerald Coates, uh, he also closed it down, oh. and. Uh, in 2004, we were all, you know, in, to use the language of the time, we were all released to go and be part of something else or do whatever we felt God was asking us at that time. But Pioneer People was ending. Wow. But, of course, those relationships didn't end, you know. So yeah, yeah, yeah. although the structure of what was Pioneer People came to an end, um, our relationships continued. So we have continued with the relationships that meant something to us because, you know, we were a community 
Um, so uh, we continued with a group that a group of friends, maybe 20, 30 of us, that we were, we were a group of friends anyway within mm -hmm. that church. So we continued meeting on an occasional basis, maybe once a month, once every five weeks. Uh, we should be very informal. Um, and that was our church community. Uh, I remember a local Baptist minister saying, well, don't you feel you need to go to a meeting on a Sunday? I went, no, I stay home and read the papers and drink coffee. And then, but I'm, I'm in community. I'm with the people I've been part of for the last 30 years. Yeah. And, and so we're being church. We are church. We're just not meeting on a Sunday, but we're meeting maybe once a month. But we're meeting in our homes. We're praying for one another. We're caring for one another. We're supporting those who are in need. Um, so that's been, that, that was our experience of church post a structured church. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm glad you mentioned Gerald Coates because uh, at the beginning I, I, I gave you immense credit for being able to interview me whilst you were getting changed in a store cupboard at Wembley Stadium. Yeah. And uh, I had the privilege, and I, I genuinely mean that, <clears throat> because um, I suppose my background is um, always open to people telling me, shouldn't do this, shouldn't do that. And, you mm. know, and of course, uh, back in the uh, 80s and 90s, um, Gerald Coates was a bit Marmite to some people, if you know yes. what I mean. And I had the, uh, an offer to go and interview him in the 1990s down in Telford, a, a Christian event. And there were at least two people within UCB who were like, oh, jokers, all, all sort of stuff. Uh, but <laughs> I went down and he blew my mind uh, with yes. his humility. Um, yeah. The fact that he was prepared to spend time to be interviewed by me. Um, yes. And it was the middle of February and I interviewed Gerald in his battered up BMW sitting outside Starbucks, drinking a cup of coffee with the rain absolutely pounding down. And I interviewed him in his car. And, yeah, I realised then that, you know, I shouldn't always listen to rumours um, mm. until you actually meet the person. And it's a pity that uh, he's no longer with us because I'd love to interview him again. What's your memory of Gerald Coates? Oh, gosh. Uh, I mean, well, we worked together closely for so many years. Uh, my first encounter with Gerald, again, Back in the late 70s, you know, he was this controversial house church leader mm. that basically said it like it was. I mean, he, he, he said the things that most people only think about. Yes. And um, Trish and I were part of this youth church down in Plymouth at the time. We just got married in 1978. And Gerald was invited to do a, uh, I think it was called an All Saints Night at the, the big Anglican church in Plymouth. And uh, we, our church was invited to lead the worship. So we arrived, Trisha, myself and my music team, and we were setting up and uh, we looked out into the auditorium or the, the church uh, itself. And uh, that was our first meeting with Gerald. He was actually there helping to put the chairs out. Wow. Which was uh, very unusual because most preachers, visiting preachers, were so full of themselves and didn't do things like that. Yeah, yeah, and this was the first Christian leader I think I met who I thought had you know that touch of humility about him. So that, and then he he then uh, after this event spent two nights with our church telling us his life story and wow. it was hilarious, outrageous, um, blew us away. We'd never listened to anybody who was so non-religious uh, as this person, and so much on it. I mean. You know, he was talking about people that, you know, he was friends with people like Sir Cliff Richard, 
mm-hmm. Rick Parfit of Status Quo, and we're thinking, this guy's, you know, and he was outrageous. I would have just but, stopped there. So look, I, don't talk about anything else. Let's just talk about the Quo, please. You know, that, that would have been me. You know, he was outrageously funny. Yeah. And, you know, I, I traveled with him all over the world. And um, it was just incredible, you know, to to see how he destroyed the sacred cows of religiosity. Mm. And uh, and it was a privilege to have done that for all those years. And uh, so, yes, so, I, I, you know, you, you, you said, you know, do I have a hero? Um, but, I, you know. We'll find uh, out be, who might be later it, on. It would be difficult to talk about Gerald. I've, I've talked about him like that in, <laughs> in one sense. I, I never see him as a hero because he was my mate. You know, that, yeah. was, that was the thing. Yeah. So I can't really go over that ground again. But just to say that what he put into us as a group of people, uh, we're still living with now this whole idea of non-religious Christianity, that you know, church is something you're part of, not something you go to. That you know, and and he basically just hit away all those sacred cows, and we ended up hopefully living in a sense of reality. Yeah, and yeah. that's and that's what we're grateful for. Yeah, yeah. Well, we'll find out whether Gerald Coates is your uh, Christian hero at the end. <laughs> <laughs> at the end, I've got a feeling it might be, but you just never know. But leading on from that, how he was blowing up um, figuratively, no, sorry, literally, mm. yeah, word-wise, that's right, um, <clears throat> the sacred cows. Why are so many people, do you think, turning their backs on, on church today, not on, not on God, but on, on church Mm. I, I, I think they're realizing that it's um, that there are other ways that we can be living and other ways in which we can be church. I mean, Martin Scott, who, uh, you know, you, you said you, you're going to be interviewing, you know, yeah. Martin said, you know, it's like, well, um, when you talk about church is what do you mean? What sort of definition of church are you talking about? Yes, and if your definition of church is a building where people sit in rows and listen to somebody talking out the front and have worship done to them by a band that sings songs, uh, a kind of a consumer-based way of doing things, you know, like you know, if you go to the states, you can basically have that, you know, because it's it's a product that you can buy every Sunday. Um, that probably is true in a lot of other countries as well, uh, and you call that church. Um, whereas if you look in the New Testament, where two or three are gathered, you know, I am there. That's what Jesus said. So church is anything from two or three gathered around a table, which actually, to me, is far more what church is all about than sitting looking at the back of somebody's head and having something done to me every Sunday. So, you know, for me, you know, breaking bread, you know, one of the big things that Gerald used to get criticized over was, well, pioneer people or Cobham Christian Fellowship don't have communion every Sunday. To which he said, well, what, you think having a nip and a sip and thinking of Jesus hanging across with all the clouds clouds floating in the sky is actually going to do anything? Uh, Basically, his idea of communion was basically it's people sitting around the table having a meal together. And whenever you sit around the meal table, you raise your glasses and remember that we can do this because of what God has done in our lives through Jesus Christ. Mm. So, um, and, and for me, those are the meaningful times. Most of what's happened in my life has happened around the table. 
Yeah. I've been to thousands of meetings over the years, but probably the life-changing events have happened around the table with a group of friends. So I like the definition of church being a group of friends around a table, eating and drinking together, sharing life, and Jesus is in the midst. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, so it just depends how you define church. <laughs> and I think a lot of people uh, are not against church, but I think they, they are against a particular model of church, which doesn't meet their needs and doesn't connect with them. I've asked, uh, you seem to be saying the same things that other people have uh, on previous podcasts. Um, and one of the things that I'm a big believer in is conversation, you know, just mm. be able to talk to somebody, ask yeah. those questions um, in a, a safe environment. So you, you can learn. That's how I've learned. That's why I'm still a yeah. Christian today, because there have been some people in my Bristol days, especially, who uh, realised that uh, it was a rough diamond in the making, not even a rough mm. diamond, and were prepared to spend time with it. So conversation conversation was key. <clears throat> but um, other people who have been on the podcast also have said, well, this is what we need to do now. So for those people that are listening today that are broken, are just so fed up, despondent with church life, what would you say to them? I, I would say just spend time with your friends and um, invest in those friendships, those life links that you have, um, which is what we do here um, in Mallorca. You know, we have a circle of friends, um, some of whom are Christians, uh, and probably the greater majority of them are people who don't have any faith whatsoever. Yeah. But we spend time with our friends, we have community, and God breaks into those times, which is just absolutely incredible. You know, we we have a couple of friends, and uh, this couple, he's Swedish and she's Irish, and her father, who was in his 90s, died during the pandemic in Ireland, and she couldn't go to his funeral. So she, being a kind of a, a Catholic in the looser sense of the word, you know, arranged for a mass to be said last year at the local Catholic church. So she invited us to come to the mass. Mm -hmm. And um, it was just on a regular Wednesday evening mass in the Catholic church across the street from where they have an apartment. So we went there. There was just five of us, just five of us friends. Wow. And I missed the whole thing that the priest did for the for her father because he just mentioned him in prayers, you know. I mean, I was sitting in the, the Catholic church and I was thinking, well, all this grandeur and everything and um, where's God in all of this? And I just felt God saying, well, I'm here, you know. I'm, I'm here in all of this, even though it's not your cup of tea, I'm here. Yeah. So, uh, and these people that are here are sincere. So, you know, Noel, I don't approve of everything you do, but I'm with you. <laughs> And then afterwards, we sat we sat around the table having drinks and food together, and uh, in in just just a general conversation, you know. And I would say Trish and I were the only ones who really would you know have what I'd say a living faith. Mm -hmm. um, I just said, you know, can we just pause a second? I said that was a very special time having the mass tonight. I said, can we just you know raise our glasses and thank God for your father? Mm. And they all did. You know, so I think we we bring God into the everyday stuff of life. Yeah, yeah. And because uh, that's the way it's meant to be. It's not meant to be like and now sign on the dotted line and give your life to Jesus. Yeah. It's just no. You know, here we are. And with another couple of friends last year, and and the wife said in passing, she said, you know, um, do you? Uh, what was the question? I'm just trying to think now. But it was like, um, do you believe that when we die? There's something after this. And I said, of course we do. 
You know that. We've got faith, yeah. you know. You know, so you, you, you bring those questions in. You bring those answers into those questions. And, you know, we're not under pressure to see people save and put bums on seats. We're under pressure just to be, we're not under pressure. We're just wanting to be friends and allow God to break into those everyday situations as and when. Yeah, yeah. So our friends who don't have any faith, they know what we stand for. And, you know, they, but they know that we're not their friends because we want to see them saved. We're their yeah. friends because we're their friends. Yeah. So I think let's take the pressure off trying to do something. Uh, let's enjoy living in this world, living with our friends, both friends that have faith and both friends that don't have faith. And just be grateful yeah. and just be available. Yeah, yeah. I hear that. You said, uh, obviously, from Chlantrisant, um, you're now in Mallorca. Uh, before mm. we find out why you're in Mallorca now, just a quick question, something you alluded to. When did you actually become a Christian, though? Um, let's see. I, I suppose the first time I, I kind of made a prayer of commitment, I might have yeah. been about nine years old, you know, because, you know, that was the environment I was in, yeah. you know, you need to get right with God because you might go to hell or your parents might get raptured and you'd be left behind, yeah. which of course was nonsense because the rapture is a fiction. Um, but those, those were the things we lived with. So I suppose my, my first response to God when I was nine years old was probably out of fear. Didn't want to get left behind. Didn't want to lose my parents, you know, didn't want to fall under a London bus and get killed, which was unlikely in Wales. I was just going to say that. Yeah. yeah um, and then, you know, I think the problem is then you, when you have a, 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 when you're brought up on stories of a God that is a fearful God, I've often thought about this. I'm going to do a podcast about it. I think what I'm doing with these podcasts is I'm kind of bearing my soul. Yeah. And hopefully people will uh, hear where I'm coming from. But, you know, my, my whole uh, upbringing was listening to stories about a God who committed genocide, flooded the earth, killed the firstborn, uh, wiped out armies, um, got people who didn't do what he told them, swallowed by whales or turned into pillars of salt. Wales, not the country. The, the not animal. Wales, the country. Yeah, yeah. that's right. <laughs> and, and, and so, uh, you know, I, I'm, I was confronted with a God that basically wasn't very nice. Yeah. And we got we had choruses about it. You know, so we sang songs about God killing people and God <laughs> flooding the earth and yeah. all this sort of stuff. And if you don't you know, put your trust in God, God will do bad things to you. So I think the basis of me coming to faith was like a very shaky foundation mm. because then they go, well, God loves you. I go, well, it's God bipolar or something because <laughs> at one moment he's killing people and he loves me. And if I don't do what he tells me, then he'll kill me. Yeah, yeah. Um, so uh, I think I was very confused. And 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 then when I was fifteen, uh, that was kind of a, a kind of a turning point in my life because we had a new pastor come to our church straight out of Bible college, a guy called John Glass, mm -hmm. who later became the general secretary of the Elim movement, and we still keep in touch to these days. Wow. And and John mentored me and encouraged me as a musician, singer, songwriter. So I'm doing what I'm doing today because he invested. Uh, in my own life. He was a musician as well. And he was the first, you know, cool pastor <laughs> I'd ever met, you know, and uh, took me to my first Christian concert. 
Where was that? Uh, you got, you got, that was um, a thing called It's Buzz, which was in 1971. All oh, right. Uh, Organised by a guy called Pete Meadows. Who Pete was, Meadows. Oh, yes. Yeah. yes. He was the host. And I was 16 at the time, and we went to this big concert venue called the Colston Hall in, in Bristol. Bristol. Know it so well. Yeah. Uh, probably about 2,000 people in there, I would think, because yeah. it was packed out. And I'd never been to a concert in my life because Christians were not allowed to go to concerts because that was worldly. Right. So everything that, that I grew up with was worldly. So you you couldn't smoke, you couldn't drink, you couldn't go to pubs, you couldn't go to discos, because it was all worldly. You couldn't go to football games because that was worldly. Certainly couldn't dance because that was worldly. And uh, jokingly said, you know, why do Christians, you know, not make love standing up? Because it might lead to dancing. Anyway... <laughs> I wanted to get that joke in. Uh, so, so we went to the Colson Hall, but on the way doing that day, because we had a whole day out, I think it was 15 of us in this youth group, 15 or 20 of us that John took in a minibus. Yeah. We, went, we went ice skating and 10-pin bowling before the gig. In Frogmore Street, the ice rink just behind oh, the Colston right. Hall. Yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah. Was, and I'd never been ice skating or 10-pin bowling before, and I thought, this is fantastic. And John got into terrible trouble with the deacons the next day because when we went ice skating, they were playing worldly music, mm. playing rock and roll. So he got into terrible trouble because he'd taken us to a den of iniquity. But that was a life-changing moment for yeah. me because that's when I saw a young Graham Kendrick singing on the stage and thought, that's what I want to do with the rest of my ah, life. Ah, right. So, you see, religious people always miss it. They yeah. always... They always criticised, but that was that was a god moment for me. Well, the elders would be pleased to know that the uh, the ice rink in Frogmore Street is no more. It's been uh, <laughs> taken over. <laughs> it's now a and student I, accommodation. Here's, a, here's another funny little thing. You know, like I started doing coffee bars in yeah. South Wales, and I was like sixteen and seventeen. And I remember going to this one Elim church, this Porth Elim church in the Rhondda Valley. And what we used to do in those days was we used to sort of put, you know, fishing nets up on the ceiling and coloured lights in and all that to make it look sort of like a nightclub sort of thing. Yeah. Bring people in. And this deacon went ape, uh, this older deacon. He's dead now. He knows better. But this deacon shouted at us and everything because we put a red light <gasps> outside the church building. And he said, you know, you're going to attract the wrong kind of people. Because yeah, red light smells no, I didn't, danger. I didn't, know what a, I didn't know what a red light did. Yeah, yeah. Being a, a sheltered Pentecostal, I didn't know that red light signified having a good time. <laughs> so he said, we, we, we don't want to attract the wrong people in. Actually, these were the people he want, we needed to be attracted yeah. in. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, you know, religion always misses it. Yeah, yeah. You know, that's it. Anyway, that, that was my early experience. And I think, you know, I, I've had to unlearn an awful lot as in my adult life. That, you know, if God is my father, if God loves me, then certainly he's not this ferocious, um, fearful God of the Old Testament. Yes, yes. He can't be one thing and be something else. So either God loves us or he doesn't. Yes, yes. Well, if I ever get to Mallorca, I'll be driving along trying to find a house with a red light outside because it's, <laughs> it's bound to be yours. Why are you actually <laughs> why are you in Mallorca now, sir? Why? Well, it, this this small group of people that we were fellowshipping with, yeah. uh, our friendship group, if you like, in in Cobham in Surrey, um, the the couple that were kind of in, in in a sense leading that, they were leading a kind of youth work in the area, 
which was great. It was life changing for so many young people in the schools in the area, mm -hmm. and the work still continues to this day. But they felt their time was coming to an end, and they were looking for other places to go. And they thought of maybe joining Twenty Four Seven in Ibiza. But they they been to Mallorca on a visit, and they just kind of connected with the place. So they decided that's where they wanted to be for the next stage of their life. And uh, so we went out with them to, while they settled in. We just went for three months over the winter period because we had some friends, some Christian friends on the island. So uh, a small group of seven of us moved out there. And it was just basically friends going out there. And you know, we spent three months, which actually became nine months. We stayed longer. And then realized that's where we felt most at home. Wow. And this has become our home. Wow. Uh, since 2010 so um yeah this is this is where we belong this is have you have you seen uh i suppose it's mallorcans is it people from mallorca yeah um, um mallorcans have you noticed are they more open to christianity compared to well, other parts? I, 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 I think there's the spirituality on the island one of the things that we noticed was you know there was a, a, a real spirituality amongst a lot of people here hmm. on the island. Probably, you know, engaging in some stuff that wasn't particularly helpful. But um, definitely the island is, uh, I would say, is a very spiritual place. People who come here, they, they start to unwind, they relax. They, there's something about the place which yeah. is, you know, it's got its problems like anywhere. Um, but it certainly is uh, a place where, it's it's just a place of beauty. I mean, last night we we went to a little location which we hadn't been to for a while. It's where people go to watch the sun go down. Yeah, and we we just went there on the way home from. We'd spent the afternoon at the beach. We don't go to the beach that often, but we went yesterday afternoon. And I said, let's just check out this area. I haven't been there for a while, and we were going to stay there five minutes, but um, the sun was going down. And we said, and we just stayed there probably for an hour. We we just and probably about sixty or so people all gathered at this place and all ages. Some with picnics and stuff like that, and just plonked down a little sheet and got some beers and stuff. And they were just watching the sun going down. And you think that's great. We just people come here every night and just watch the sun going down. Yeah, they take they take time to do it, and you realise when you're on the island that you slow down. And I think that's, you know, that's part of living, you know, that God doesn't want us to live at this frenetic pace. So I think, um, you know, there, there's a strong Catholic um, culture here, of course, because it's a Catholic country. Um, and some of the Catholics we've met, they just have incredible, strong faith. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, I, th I think, yeah, it's... It's a place where there are, you know, evangelical churches as well, but we we just haven't felt connected with them because you get sucked into that bubble, and you don't have time for other friends, because yeah. you know it becomes a bubble that's separate from the rest of the world. So yeah. we have deliberately not got involved in that. And then they say, "Oh, you play guitar? Off you go, sir!" And you go, "Oh no, <laughs> please no." Well, you mentioned sunset. Um, which obviously means towards the end of the day. Unfortunately, we're running out of time as well for this, okay. this podcast. Uh, I'd like to say, first of all, before we get to find out who your uh, Christian hero is, uh, this has been a, a BCSC production. And uh, if there's anything you'd like to comment on or want to know any more information, please email us uh, to OGC, that's OGC, Off Grid Christianity, OGC at accessradio.biz. 
accessradio.biz and biz is spelt B-I-Z. Noel, I could listen to you for hours on your stories. Thank you so much for, for joining us today. Uh, I'd just like you to end off, please. You have two minutes to discuss who your Christian hero is. Uh, just give us a bit of a biography about him mm. and uh, I'll leave the rest to you. Thank you, good sir. Okay. Well, since we talked about Gerald Coates, who was one of the leading figures of the house church movement, which uh, is now known as the new church movement, I've got one story about him, which is absolutely hilarious. We were in New Zealand in 1984 for a conference, charismatic conference. It was going really well. People were relaxed and informal. And then on the Sunday, the religious spirit descended. And I arrived at the venue early because I was setting up with a worship band and noticed that there was a huge table set up with a white sheet covering it. And I knew what was underneath there. It was the bread and the wine. We were now into religious Sunday morning communion in the middle of a non-religious Christian conference. I said to the organizers, I said, he ain't going to like this. Meaning Gerald. (laughs) And sure enough, half an hour later, Gerald arrived. And it was like I could see that he was not happy with the way that we had now gone from uh, freedom into legalism, you know, faith into formality. So when he got up to preach, he stood up and he said, of all the meetings in the church calendar, this is the one I hate the most. And this, as he took hold of the white tablecloth and pulled it off, said, this does not help at all. Gasp, shock, horror. And then he said, you know, we are trying to be non-religious here now. We've gone into this religious thing. And he started to eat the bread. And people were shouting at him, going, you can't do that. He goes, why? We'll all grab some in a few minutes. I'm just having mine early. And... He killed the sacred cow of communion. It's one of those moments I was going, yep, that's it. You know, we've got to nail this thing on the head. You know, we can't be schizophrenic. We can't be saying we want to live life, you know, in faith, in a a non-religious way, and then descend every Sunday into this ridiculous charade. And uh, it was hilarious. People getting quite irate because he was eating the bread early. And the wine? And the wine. Well, it wasn't real wine, was it? Yeah, I think it was some sort of red grape juice or whatever. And, um, you know, so that was that's one of the sort of great stories of Gerald destroying sacred cows. Wow. And I think I must be out of my two minutes now. Well, that is fantastic. And I, I remember actually asking uh, uh, Gerald about a, a prophecy, which I think I'll, I'll ask Martin Scott about because he's uh, into the, uh, the prophetic, uh, about a prophecy he gave in New Zealand. And, oh, right. Uh, yeah. yeah. It, it was a phenomenal answer that he gave me on that. Noel Richards, thank you so much for spending time today. It's been a, a real privilege hearing hearing from you and I uh, hope we can uh, meet up again soon. Thank you so much. Yeah, and I, I hope people get help with the podcast. And Thank you very much, Nisa. Yeah, Jeez. pleasure. Thank, thank you. you.